Welcome to the On The Green Podcast, where we'll give you the latest news and events from the world of golf and spotlight golf courses from around Northeast Florida and the First Coast. We'll take you inside the ropes with interviews, strategies for playing the courses, and get a tip from the head professional. Each show will also feature an interview with a prominent golf insider. They'll share firsthand stories and insights you won't hear anywhere else. Now, here's your host of On The Green, Tim Eiley. Hello, and welcome to another edition of On The Green Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Eiley. We're coming to you today from Studio Podcast Suites here in Jacksonville, Florida. You can find this podcast on your favorite podcast platform or check us out on our website, onthegreenconsulting.com. This is where you can also find my monthly blog, which I hope you'll enjoy. On today's show, I'm going to sit down with Amy Alcott, LPGA and World Golf Hall of Fame member. We're going to spend some time talking about her storied career, her career in golf course design, her entrepreneurial spirit, and what she's doing today. It's going to be a great show, so welcome to On the Green Podcast. Today, I'm honored to have LPGA and World Golf Hall of Fame member Amy Alcott on the show. Amy, welcome to On the Green Podcast. Absolutely a pleasure, Tim. Nice to talk to you. Well, I am so excited to be talking to you. I'm a big fan, uh, as are probably most of our listeners uh, out there. Um, Now, your resume, when I was looking through getting prepared for the podcast, I I knew you were good. But I didn't realize how good you you've won 33 times around the world, five major championships, 12 straight years with at least one tournament win, which is incredible. The Vare Trophy winner in 1980 for the lowest scoring average, obviously LPGA and World Golf Hall of Fame member. But you're also a writer, a golf course architect, an entrepreneur, a speaker. Holy cow, Amy. Well, you got to stay busy, Tim. What can I say? <laughs> I think in that in that whole resume that you said, the uh, one of the things I'm the most proud of was um, was the consistency I had. You know, when you mentioned that, I uh, it brings me back to um, uh, you know how uh, you know that's that's the key in golf. Sure, consistency. And to win, like I did, 12 straight times, I guess I wasn't a fluke. Oh, no. <laughs> but, no, no, but, no. But, but what, uh, what uh, strikes me the most is that, you know, um, golf is just a game like that. It's a game of maintaining a level of consistency. If you're consistent, you will be successful. And so I think I'm most proud of the fact that I hung in there and was, pretty good every year for at least 12 years. I think it was some record. I believe that was tied with Nicholas had done that, but um, I'm not sure. That's pretty good company. Now, how did, how did golf come into your life? How did you get involved in golf? Well, I was uh, a child of television like most young kids are. And I think I sensed maybe I didn't sense it, but I was very much my own person, very much a loner, and I would watch the cartoons on Saturday, and then golf would come on, the CBS Golf Classic, Shell's Wonderful World of Golf, Big Three Golf. I'm mm-hmm. gonna, I'm dating myself <laughs> with a guy, mostly guys playing, 
guys playing and, uh, you know, with strange names like Kermit Zarley and Mike Suchak and right. <laughs> people like that. And I watched this swing and it, it was different than being a tomboy on the street that I grew up in, in the West LA area, you know, playing with the boys and everything. I was watching this beautiful dance step and, and trying to hit a stationary ball versus a tennis ball or, or carrying a football or hitting a softball. Um, and I, I, I had more and more questions and it really, it really was something that I absolutely had to, you know, figure out. So my dad, I asked my dad if he had any, I was that young, that eight had any of those sticks that push the ball and those white balls. Oh my gosh. And he had, my parents were not golfers, which is pretty interesting. Nobody in my family played golf. Um, and he had bought my mom a set of clubs, I guess at one time when they were married, thinking maybe she'd take it up. And he cut me a club down about, I don't know, 25 inches, mm-hmm. um, with duct tape on it. And I went out in the front yard and the sprinkler head started pushing the balls in the sprinkler heads. And then I was obsessed and that grew up eventually within a year to a junior set of clubs and putting on the front yard into soup cans that I would put in the front yard and Mm -hmm. chipping golf balls out of the Ivy and, my dad built a sand trap in the front yard and we used to go to the uh, lumber company and fill it up with sand. Cause I hit so many shots over the sidewalk onto the front lawn. Oh my gosh. And, and so that was in the neighborhood that became known as the Alcock golf and country club. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And so, and I even have had membership cards made to, her cousins when they came and visited and gave them a membership card. And then I started charging people for drinks and hey. cocktails when they would come to the house. And my, my mother told my dad, you know, we got to knock that off. Amy's sending out monthly bills to the neighbors and <laughs> on their, me- on their membership charge. And, you know, so I guess I was a, a bit of a little character and started playing junior golf and, I, I will ramble on here about, you know, um, those wonderful, great days of starting and falling in love with a sport. Well, your entrepreneurial spirit was there young. Um, what about your dream of being a professional golfer? When, when did that strike you? Well, I think uh, like anything, it's a snowball that gathers pace and you don't want to kind of get in the way of it. And I started playing junior golf and my mother drove me around all of Southern California to junior golf tournaments and from the age of about 10 to 17. And um, I was winning everything, you know, all stay. I won the state amateur, state junior, set a course record at Pebble Beach for women. Beat, beat, beat Babe Zaharias's record. Oh, wow. Uh, for, uh, Pebble Beach. I don't know. I doubt it still holds. I've never really checked. I know they keep a men's course record, but I don't know that they keep a women's. Uh, times are changing now, though. Sure. <laughs> uh, sure. 
Um, but back in, uh, that was 1973, I did that. And there was really, what was I going to do after that? You know, I was, um, you know, one of the top players and, uh, was I going to, I had one college scholarship and that was to go to Dartmouth and play on the men's golf team, which, which was a wonderful opportunity, but I didn't see myself moving from California to New Hampshire oh. and uh, taking all the classes and trying to play golf in February. Sure. Um, and I was, as my teacher, Walter Keller, who taught me how to play, um, indoors hitting into a net in his golf shop in West L.A., that was kind of... That's really how I started playing, hitting balls into a net. I didn't, um, you know, I was, they just made the best and the most of what I had. Uh, and uh, he says, you know, kid, you're a little racehorse. You need to go out and play against the best. Are you ready to do that? And so that's what I did. I turned pro right out of high school. Um a lot of people weren't rooting for me to do that. I had asked some people with the USGA at the time because I was the U.S. junior champ, and and they were all giving me advice. Oh, Amy, you're a young girl. You got to go off and go to at least get a college education and play college golf. But that didn't seem for me. So I was going to just go off and kind of branch out on my own, and that's really what I did. I went to the qualifying school. Um, yeah, right out of high school, 1970, uh, 1975 and, um, barely qualified. Um, I think there was a lot of pressure on me at that qualifying school. I think I was the last qualifier and I was expected to be one of the top ones. And from then on, I ran to the telephone when I qualified. I ran to the phone, I called my mom, and I said, Mom, I found my my little oyster here. I said, it's all going to be downhill from here, meaning all the pressure was off once you qualified. Right. I was going to make the most, I was going to make the most of it. So that was uh, January of 1975. And then right out so, of the gate, right out of the gate, though, you you started winning. I mean... A lot of people yeah. take take a lot of seasoning. If you think about how young you were, the fact that you you know, I mean, yes, you played tournament golf, but these this this was professional now, and to go right out of the gate and on your third start win, that's incredible. Yeah, um, I think I was just so excited to have made it, and and um, yeah, the first tournament was at Kendall Lake in uh, Miami and then we went to Naples to the Lely Classic and I was just an 18 year old kid you know with long pigtails and little linen skirts playing against you know the real veterans of the game and um, trying to figure out you know private housing and calling my sponsors up uh, to see if I could afford to not eat at McDonald's that week because I had 15 (laughs) people 15 people that put up a thousand dollars a piece for me to go on the tour. Oh, wow. I couldn't, I couldn't begin to play five tournaments now for that, but I played something like almost everything, 36 events for, you know, for the first two years. Uh, and then was able 
to pay them back. But that third tournament you're alluding to was uh, changed my life as I went out and uh, won the Orange Blossom Classic. Total purse, $35,000, mm-hmm. 1975. And I won it on my 19th birthday, February 22nd, 1975. That was my first tournament win. Oh, well, there's, there's a big a happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and made a 25-footer on the last hole to win. I didn't know. I, I didn't want to look at the leaderboard, but my life, my life changed very quickly. And, uh, um, you know, golf has given me this amazing arena to showcase my talent. Um, and, you know, now in my 60s, I look back and I see it more and more the way the times are now with, uh, you know, young women you know, grabbing their, their, um, their fortunes and that meaning their fortunes, what's it really in their heart. And, um, it's far more acceptable to just kind of go out and be who you are and uh, nothing should hold you back. No things, expectation or anything, but I was lucky to have had a, a father who didn't play golf, who he was the first, uh, as a kid, the first experience I had at a women's liver was my father. He would enter me in junior golf tournaments that were all boys and tell me I should be there. And I would kind of be kicking and saying, Dad, I'm not going to play with, there's no girls division. And he said, you're going to carry your little bag or pull your cart. You're going to do your the best you can do. And I would always leave that tournament doing better than I thought I could do. It mm-hmm. gave me a real appreciation as a junior golfer of interacting with young boys and not just the girls division that I belonged. And, and some of these relationships going way, way back, I still have today with, with uh, kids I played junior golf with. So um, I'm getting off the subject. Sorry about that. But, oh, no, this is great. Um, this is great. You know, it just shows again yeah. that, you know, golf is a big sport, but it's a very small community. You're absolutely right about that. And the more you play it, the more you really uh, realize, you know, that, that that's true. Mm-hmm. People within the golf industry move around and uh, expand their horizons and, it's a, a very tight community, and I think the bottom line is we all know how challenging and and uh, zen-like the game of golf can be. So, well, that first year, nineteen seventy-five, um, you know, you win in your third professional start, named Rookie of the Year, and then in nineteen seventy-nine, you win your first of five major championships. So, talk about that first major win. Well, it was in Montreal at um, the Peter Jackson Classic. It was kind of the first year of that particular event became a major. Um, and we played at uh, a golf course called Richelieu Valley Country Club. Very challenging course in Montreal. They have several great courses there. Mm-hmm. And I remember that week distinctly because I had the flu and I had a 103 temperature and I was very close to with 
withdrawing. And um, I think I was on the phone with my mother, who, uh, again, was not a golfer. And she says, honey, you know, you should really, you know, not play and just come home. And I said, no, I, I just think, you know, that, you know, if I can make it around, I'm going to play. And then she said to me, you know, they always say, beware of the sick golfers. You oh, know, definitely. Because you're, you're, you know, you have no expectations. And it was a, an amazing week. I ended up uh, walking on the 18th green, which was a short par five, went for it in two, and had like about a 70-foot eagle putt. And I was, I think, one or two shots ahead of Nancy Lopez, who was playing in the group behind us, and we were tied. And I looked at that putt coming downhill with the crowd there, all the French Canadians, and uh, I said, well, let's see if I could just kind of get it within a bucket. And I hit like the most perfect putt and knocked it in the hole. It was, went crazy. Um, the crowd went nuts for an eagle on the last hole. And um, I think Nancy, I don't know, I believe she parred or bogeyed the hole. But anyway, I was the winner. And I, I got to tell you that with all the screaming people uh, <laughs> in the crowds, that was yelling in French. That was pretty exciting. And to be sick and to do it, I got well pretty quick. Oh, I would <laughs> think so. I mean, how exciting. What a great finish. That was yeah, knowing you had to great. at least make birdie because you figured Nancy was going to make birdie. So, you know, then that yeah. 70 footer goes in and you're a major champion. Yeah. My caddy, Larry Mashia at the, t- at the time was swinging that flagstick around and getting all the, <laughs> the, all the Frenchies going. It was, it was really very exciting. Well, let me ask you this. Um, in your mind, how hard is it to win a major compared to what we call a regular tour event? Well, when you're younger, you feel like you have to do so much more to because it's all in your mind. But in actuality, a major is just like any other golf tournament you're playing in. It's just, it's, but you have to take all of the all the expectation out of your mind and just play golf. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know, I always use the word word ultimate preparation because I think that there is a golf god, and I call him Bruce, <laughs> which happened to be happened to happened to be my brother's name, but. I, I, I laugh about this. Bruce is the god of golf. And Bruce will shine very brightly on you if you know in in your spirit that you are ultimately prepared. Mm-hmm. And the example of this is uh, you're playing in the uh, first, you know, in the U.S. Open. You hit a shot into the first green. Pins tucked in the far back right corner. You you get a little aggressive or block it out, and you're down the hill. You've got a t- really tough pitch shot, just even on the first hole. Mm-hmm. It'd be the 15th hole. Wouldn't even matter what hole it is. And you walk up to that pitch shot, which is probably a little flop shot, 
And if you know in your heart the week before while you were home or at another event that you had hit a thousand of those Mm -hmm. and you could see it, feel it and perform that if you really, really believe it and really know that when you walk up to it, there's almost a sense of excitement in your spirit that you can get it up and down. You'll hit the shot. And if there's one inkling of doubt that you haven't put in the time or really don't believe it, then you're not going to play the shot. You're going to hit it 30 feet by just to get it on the green. Right. And you're going to, you're going to two putt and make a bogey. But it's that ultimate sense of preparation when the golf gods shine brightly on you. And I mean, that's the ability for great players to be able to step up to the challenge and do it when it really means something. Because a lot of people can do it when it doesn't mean something. It's putting yourself on the line when it does mean something. Well, I would think that uh, the next year in 1980, uh, you were ultimately prepared because you won the U S women's open. Yeah. 23 years old. Um, an amazing golf course, Richland country club in Nashville, Tennessee. Sadly, it's no longer there. It was a great Donald Ross course. And, um, I won by nine shots in one of the hottest summers in American history. I mean, players of my generation, friends of mine, remember the, how hot it was and oftentimes say, oh, remember how hot it was when you won in Nashville? You know, you re- players remember certain things about other players' wins and so forth. It was so hot. Gordon White, who wrote for the New York Times, put a thermometer in the bunker. It's, it was like 126. Oh, wow. And it was a survival test because I can remember just um, registering for the tournament. It was like 111 at human. And uh, a veteran player named Marlene Hagee was registering next to me. And she said, um, I know who's going to win this week. And I, she, I said to her, who? She, I said, who? She says, whoever doesn't withdraw is going to win <laughs> because it was, it was, it was so, that hot. <laughs> it, was, it was that hot. Yes. And, um, you know, that was to win by nine shots there and have to, in the final round, have towels over my head and ice on my neck and think I was going to pass out. And I remember saying to myself, Alcott, you've worked your whole life putting and chipping on your front lawn saying this is for the U S open. And now you really have the opportunity to do it. You cannot pass out right now, (laughs) even if you hobble in. And (laughs) Oh, that's crazy. Here's another funny adjunct to that is that I was at Riviera country club, my home course here in Los Angeles couple years ago, and I was watching Brant Snedeker hit golf balls at the Genesis Open. And I didn't know Brant, but I liked the way he just kind of gets at it and does things quickly and, and the speed of his game, how he plays. Mm-hmm. And he turned around and he looked at me and he says, excuse me, because are you Amy Alcott? 
And I said, well, yes, I am. I said, I love your game. He says, you know, I've always wanted to meet you. He says, you know, our family was a member at Richland Country Club. I'm from Nashville. I said, yeah, I know that. I, he says, my father was a member at the club, scored in the group. Oh, no. And I guess was either the scorer in my group or whatever. <laughs> it made me feel so old for a minute. <laughs> and he says, I believe it was 1980. And I go, yeah. And then he goes, well, that, I was born in 1980. Oh, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> or 81 or something like that. And boy, did that make me. And he says, you know, he says, of all the lady pros, you're the one, one that I wanted to meet. And it was just a very sweet interaction. So, um, Oh, that's great. So the golf course uh, is no longer there. Uh, it turned into a high-end housing development, and they built another Richland Country Club for the members in another part of town. So unfortunately, I can't go back and visit where I won the U.S. Open, but um, uh, that's okay. It's in my memory bank. Exactly. Well, I, you obviously <laughs> don't mind the heat because you won three Nabisco Dinosaurs uh, out in the desert, uh, Palm Springs yeah. area. The first one being in 1983. Um, how special right. was that event? That was a very unique golf tournament. Um, I mean, the unsung hero in women's golf during the early 80s who really put golf on the map was a guy named David Foster who ran Colgate Palmolive. And he really put his money where his mouth is. I mean, he, uh, he put on not only the, the, the disc, uh, sorry, the Colgate Dinosaur tournament with Dinosaur. It was like the tournament in women's golf. It was the masters of women's golf. You had a, a great venue, you had a great sponsor. You had Dinosaur, you had the celebrities. Um, everybody wanted to play, finish in the, the eligibility was you had to finish in the top three, I believe, or the top five just to get into the Dinosaur Tournament. It's still called the Dinosaur, even though it's the ANA inspiration. Many people still call it the Dinosaur. Including I me. Get letters. <laughs> yeah, I get letters from people. And um, so to, wit, to be eligible for that in 1975 after I won that tournament in the orange blossom, I became immediately eligible to play that year, um, in the, in the Colgate dinosaur. So to, and I played pretty well that first year, but in 83, I played really well and won my first one, um, there at mission Hills. So I will always remember that in my home state. And there's always a little more pressure with Southern California, mm -hmm. but I played, I'm remembering it right. I played some really great golf there. Um, and then 88 was amazing. Uh, very windy final day and, uh, just found a way to, to make that happen in 88. And I think I'd ask my caddy, uh, well, I think you might have a question for me. So well, I'm yeah, I'm just, I'm curious because yeah. I know um, in 1988, you decided, and you can tell us the story, 
to jump okay. in Poppy's pond after after your yeah. win. So give us give us the background on that. Well, um, it wasn't called Poppy's Pond there. I mean, it's a great finishing hole. Uh, Desmond Muirhead designed course, uh, one of the greats, worked with Nicholas and all, uh, many years ago. But um, Mission Hills 18th is one of the best. And um, I win the tournament in the wind, get a great shot into 18. And I think I had said early in the week to my caddy, just in passing, um, has anybody ever like jumped in the water or what would it be like or something crazy like that? It was just a passing thought. And when I made the putt, I looked at Bill Curry, who worked for me, and I said, Bill, we're going in the water. <laughs> and I, I didn't take very long look to see that there were rocks in there and uh, bird droppings <laughs> and how, or how, how deep it was right. or how dirty it was. And we just, uh, we just jumped in there and it affectionately, I didn't had no idea what I had created, but it was a moment of grabbing my excitement and my enthusiasm. And I could not believe how, the response I got from, from that, it was really an amazing, an amazing thing to create that. Well, you know, the winners have done it ever since 1988. And then in 1991, mm-hmm. you decided that uh, Dinah needed to go for a little swim. Yeah. Dinah said to me, my mother had died and I was extremely close to my mom and it was a very tough year for me. And Dinah lived in the Los Angeles area and I ran into her, at the Hillcrest Country Club here, and she says, you know, I was very jealous when you won the tournament and that you didn't take me in the water. I want to go in, and it's our, I don't know, 30th anniversary. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to remember exactly. And she says, I want to go in the water with you. Can't you just win that one more time? I'm going to put out all the good vibes. (laughs) And I tell people when I speak, I use this term, I don't know how the stars align in life, how Ben Crenshaw wins the Masters after Harvey Penick died, or I win by, I think it was eight shots that year, 1991, and make this winning 20-footer for 25-footer for a tournament record. I was hitting shots during the week that I couldn't even believe, but it was all destined and as I'm walking up to the 18th fairway, up the 18th fairway, and hit, hit this bunker shot out of the bunker, eight iron, onto the green, and the crowd's going crazy, and here I'm going to win the tournament. Somebody ran over to Bill Curry in the gallery, handed him a business card, which was my mother's business card. She had just, oh uh, as I said, died from an art gallery where she worked in Carmel. And I almost, I started to cry as I walked up and put it in my pocket and slapped everybody's hand walking across the winner's bridge there. Mm-hmm. Make the putt and notice that Dinah Shore's got black pants on and she always wears white pants with her. Nabisco, at that time, the Nabisco jacket was red and 
white pants. And I said to Bill, I think Dinah wants to jump in the water. She means business. <laughs> I said, maybe you want to talk her out of it. You know, she's not a spring chicken. I'm waiting to putt, and I'm saying this to him. <laughs> but I stand up, and I hit the most perfect putt from about 25 feet. It was just, I could see it, feel it. I read it perfect. And, you know, win the tournament. And there's Dinah inching forward, inching forward. And I was so excited. It was like it was meant to be. And and that was it. We all jumped in the water. And that second time made it a really iconic uh, moment in women's golf and really started the trend. So, well, um, That's incredible. And that's, was, that's, that's kind of a legacy right there at uh, what I still call the dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was really, uh, uh, really had a, it was an amazing moment for me. And you, so your career, you've just, you've had such a special career. We just talked, you know, very briefly about, you know, some of the, the wins that stick in your head and so forth. And then what your career led to was being inducted into the uh, Hall of Fame. And how, how special is it to be called a Hall of Famer? Well, it's pretty cool. it's pretty cool it's nothing I ever aspired to I didn't even know there was a hall of fame until um, about four years before five four or five years before I was inducted somebody came up to me I think it was the commissioner of the tour and said um, you know if you keep going like this you're going to get into the hall of fame but I think I don't know if your listeners are familiar with you know the genesis of the hall of fame uh, there's a there's a category that if you're a pga pro what what the uh expectation is and then with with the women the lpga tour it was an archaic system of, of hall of fame induction um and so everyone knew it had to be changed. Otherwise, it would have been a dead Hall of Fame um, because it was established back at a time when a player could win four or five tournaments a year and, and build a career like mm-hmm. that. So, so I would show up at every LPGA tournament during the late 80s, and every sports writer would say, Are you, I had one more tournament that I had to win, even though I'd won five majors, they didn't count for anything. I had to win one more tournament, uh, to qualify for the hall of fame because the qualification was like, uh, something like 30, 40 events with no majors, 35 events with one major, 30 tournaments with, uh, two majors. Well, I had won five, majors and um was holding on 29 tournaments i held i had one more golf tournament i had to win and the pressure it really made me not enjoy golf very much because i'd show up and for years for about a year when are you going to win are you going to win this week you know you know you're going to win one more tournament to get in the hall of fame and i knew that was that wasn't going to define me i already knew what kind of golfer I was. Was it going to change who I was or that I was a Hall of Famer? And during the off-season, 
two years later, I think it was like uh, 19, late 1989. Um, well, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm going to date myself. 90. Well, whatever the year was, <laughs> I got a call. I got a call from, I think it was Joanne Carter on the, they were, uh, Meg Mallon, they were on the board. And they had had a committee. They were debating this because the LPGA was not getting the best publicity about its Hall of Fame criteria and that they needed to change it. So they started to have a a group of people. And so I think I'd come in from the grocery store and my phone rang and they they said, uh, we have this committee. We've just voted on new Hall of Fame criteria. And we want you to know that you've been inducted. You will be inducted into the Hall of Fame. You will be the first person under the criteria, new criteria, which is a point system. And I just, my jaw dropped. And I'm thinking, new criteria. You know, I'm getting a phone call. <laughs> if, getting, if getting into a Hall of Fame is a relief, <laughs> that's, that's basically... That that's basically that was basically it. Oh, and and Joanne Carner says, and by the way, with your record, the five majors, you know, under this new point system, you would have been in four or five years ago. I said, oh well, thanks a lot. <laughs> that's great. That, <laughs> Just what that. you wanted to hear. <laughs> yes. So I had the privilege when that day came of being inducted with Seve Ballesteros and White Mangrum. On that March day, they don't uh, at the World Golf Hall of Fame, and it was um, really an amazing pinnacle to to reach in in the game. And that was 1999. I was there. Uh, I was running. Were the, you yes, really? I was there. I was running the Liberty Mutual Legends of Golf there at the World Golf Village uh, on the Champions Tour. Oh my. Yep. Wow. I was there. I actually met you, shook your hand, congratulated you, and. And so forth. I walked around with the commissioner a little bit and and got to meet Seve and and stuff. So that was an exciting uh, Hall of Fame induction for wow. me. That's for sure. Yeah, there's. Uh, I had no idea you were there. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember you. Well, I can't you. believe you don't remember me. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I. Just, I probably would if I saw you, Tim, for sure. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. You're a Hall of Famer. Um, let's switch gears a little bit because I know you'd like to talk about junior golf and, and furthering uh, the women's game uh, of golf and, and some of the things you've been involved in on the, those fronts. Well, just basically, I'm, I'm a big benefactor of junior golf, and it's the lifeblood of the game. And I think the golf uh, community, uh, PGA of America, PGA, LPGA, uh, European, Asian group, I mean, they have really made a concerted effort, whether it's the first T program or LPGA junior girls golf, really reaching out to young, young people. They see that that's the future of the game. And um, I'm just, uh, I think it it gives young people a real um, core, solid core to their, to their being 
you know. Absolutely. The core, val- the core values and everything. And um, I just uh, I just wanted to say that, basically, and um, that I think it's it's very important to support junior golf because that's where kind of where it all starts, the love of the game, the frustration of the game, mm-hmm. and really kind of it builds character, that's for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, the women's game, as you said earlier, has come a long way. Um, the, the, as far as the girls hit the ball and, you know, the way they can uh, work their way around the golf course, uh, it's exciting to watch. I think a lot of people, you yes. know, that, that enjoy the game, enjoy watching the women. Um, who, do you yeah. think, who, who do you think is one of the best, you know, best out there today? Well, you know, the golf tour has really gotten to be a global. I mean, the tour definitely in the last 15, 20 years, it's, it's a global tour. Definitely. <laughs> and, definitely. And, um, it, and the game is, it's a beautiful thing. The game has really opened up. Um, I can remember in 1979 when Chaco Haguchi came over from Japan and won the LPGA championship. I was just on the tour a couple of years. It was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and she really popularized the game and um, won the LPGA championship. And it opened up the world. All the trips I made to Japan during the seventies and eighties was just because of the game was growing and so popularized there. And, um, and, and then of course, uh, it opened up the Swedish players started coming over and the Australian players. And now, uh, the Chinese and Korean players, uh, Taiwanese, I mean, the game has just gotten so global. Um, uh, you know, it's just, the game is, has a long and far reach, which is amazing. And we saw that. Uh, down in Rio at the Olympics um, this past couple of years back now, four years. Um, but I mean, to it was, it was just amazing to see the talent that's out there from all of the countries that are pursuing a career in golf. And even if they're not pursuing a career in it, they're uh, playing the game and it's, uh, it's opened, opened up tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of uh, the Olympics, now we we heard that you're, you know, you became an entrepreneur at eight years old. Um, <laughs> but uh, you're also, you know, you're an entrepreneur today, obviously, and you're also mm-hmm. a golf course architect. And I'm sure some of our listeners may not realize that you partnered with Gil Hands on the golf course in Rio. Yes, I did. Um, when I saw the golf was was going to be in the Olympics, which was very exciting to see. And so much effort was put into it by, you know, our former commissioner, Ty Vota, and a whole committee of people with the LPGA, I know for sure, to get that pass and for golf to become a part of the Olympics. Um, I thought, looking at it, it was going to be in Rio that, you know, I don't had no idea what golf course they were going to play, but I love design. Um, to call myself a actual architect, uh, they're a jack of all trades, you know, but I've learned a lot and 
I'm not a golf architect, but I'm, I think I'm a very good golf consultant with all the courses that I've played. Um, I thought, thinking out loud, that the golf course should be designed by a male and female team. And that's when I approached Gil about the idea. Okay. And then it, it appeared to get around very quickly. And um, all of a sudden, I was talking to Gil about it. And we were moving forward kind of. Uh, he was remodeling L.A. Country Club, where they're going to have the U.S. Open at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, upcoming U.S. Open. I think it's in 2022. And he says, well, let me give it some thought. And about two weeks later, after I talked to him, you know, uh, Jack Nicholas was on Golf Channel saying that he was wanted to design it with Annika Sorenstam. So I thought, huh, that's pretty funny how <laughs> things kind of get around. Right. Well, I'll, leave, I'll leave that right there. But um, Gil called me up and said, you know, he, he wanted to bid on the course kind of in his own name. He wanted, he's trying to build his own brand. And he understood uh, that, you know, he wanted my help, but, you know, I wouldn't be necessarily part of the uh, bidding, but he, if, if we got it. So, so many teams signed up. I said, okay, not a problem, but I, I would love to do it with you. And as it turned out, we went to, ended up being in the finalists for the final nine teams and went down to Rio and made a great presentation and we had a very good feeling and we got the bid. So uh, we knew that we were going to leave a golf course that would be in perpetuity for a country that's so soccer crazy right? and for them to even build a golf course. And I think there were kind of over and under bets whether the golf course would even be there after the Olympics, but you know, I think it was a wonderful venue, Lynx course, kind of near the ocean, there in Baja, Baja de Chuca. And from what I understand, the golf course is still there, and it really showcased well on TV. I think everybody enjoyed playing it, so it was great to be a part of that. That's pretty special right there to be, yeah. to be part, of, part of the Olympic lore. Yeah, I mean, what what a wonderful moment when we got the call that we had been chosen. Um, he was on a he was on the, on the Golf Channel from uh, Doral. Uh, he I think had been working on the remodel of Doral for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and um, he that uh, they kept postponing and postponing and postponing the decision who the winning team would would be. And all of a sudden, you know, um, it was Gil and myself. So it was, it was pretty cool to actually watch the press conference on TV and, and to just have that opportunity to, you know, add some continuity and some ideas. And, you know, Gil was the first to say, I don't really know sometimes how far the women hit it, you know, as far as the tees right. go and, and, um, I told them we need to have a risk and reward hole coming in kind of uh, on the stretch, kind of like growing up and pl- getting to play Riviera here. I always have thought the 10th hole at Riviera is one of the best, uh, one of the best short par fours. I think they make a golf course, mm-hmm. short fours. And I wanted to, so 
we we did that on one of the holes coming in, uh, which was kind of I called it the Dolly Parton hole. Oh, <laughs> uh, we have had to see the hole. It had two <laughs> had two two mounds on on it. Gotcha. <laughs> Off to the right, you got that. Okay, I got. We remember so, we're we're rated PG here on on the green. <laughs> that's right. That's that's right. We didn't go to an X rating on that. So <laughs> anyway. It was a lot of fun. It was a wonderful opportunity, and I'm really proud to have had the chance to do that. And Gil's terrific, and so it was a lot of fun. Well, here we are. You're Hall of Fame golfer. You're golf course designer. Uh, you've also written a couple of books. I want to get to those. Um, Amy Alcott's Guide to Women's Golf. And then most recently, the leaderboard okay. conversations on golf and life. Um, what was the inspiration for, first of all, your guide to women's golf? Well, you know, golf, being an independent sport, it's still about relationships. That's the thing that I take away from my years on the tour, all the people that I met, meet, and have met, and and gotten to know. And one of them was my dear friend, Don Wade, who was a senior writer with golf digest. And Don and I developed a great friendship, great relationship. Um, he used to make me laugh. He's no longer with us. He died a few years ago, but he wrote a wonderful series of books that people should really look up, which is a Real raconteur and stories. He wrote this book about Ken Venturi, but he also wrote what Jack said to Arnie, what Lee said to Tom, a whole series of stories and books. And I'm in some of my stories are in a couple of his, I believe he did nine of them. But out of that friendship came, you know, winning at golf, which was more of an instructional book. Mm hmm. And, um, so that was many years ago. We're talking like 25, at least 25 years ago, probably. Um, and then as my career, that was winning at golf as my career kind of, uh, changed and was, I was going on into like, I'm not going to say it was slowing down because I don't think anyone should ever retire. It's not a word that's really in my vocabulary. It's like people saying, you know, when you were a pro golfer, I said, I still am a pro golfer, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, 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 um, you know, it's stuff you got to live with. It's funny, but you know, I wanted to interview, I wanted to turn the tables and, and that's when we wrote leaderboard, the leaderboard conversations on golf and life. And I got the pleasure of doing that again with Don and we interviewed a lot of people that I wanted to talk to. And, um, you know, the, uh, the book, uh, the editors left out a lot of really great interviews. So I'd like to, I'm contemplating actually doing another one, but, uh, it was a series of interviews with all kinds of people who love golf and icons of entertainment and industry and, why golf changed their life, why they play. I wanted to ask the questions that I have been asked in the press room by people. So that was a really good exercise for me and kind of turning the tables with and uh, interacting with successful people. 
Well, it was definitely so, a cross side. I mean, if you think about it, you talked to, you know, Bill Clinton, you talked to Ben Crenshaw, you talked to Jack Nicholson. I mean, you know, yeah. it really is a great cross section of people that love golf from, you know, every basically every corner of the world. So it was really, yeah. really neat, uh, really, really neat book. Well, it was a few years ago, so I need to contemplate writing something else. So it's kind of, I think it's, it, I remember when I did interview Bill Clinton, he said, everybody should write a book. We all have at least one book in us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember him saying that to me. And uh, one of the last things that his mother told him is that, uh, Bill, you got a lot of books in you. <laughs> we were just talking about inspiration from mothers because uh, my mother certainly was uh, a huge inspiration in my life. So, Well, I would recommend the leaderboard conversations on golf and life to everybody out there who, who loves the game. Thank you. And so, so what what's keeping you busy these days? What are you What are you up to these days out there in California? Well, I'm living the COVID life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think if this if this is like the new normal, um, I am getting a lot of exercise, um, and my new kind of love the last seven or eight years of my life has been finance and studying the stock market, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, trying to understand our financial structure and our markets better so I can speak the language and understand my own investments that I had. And I think I've gotten fairly, I'm not going to say good at it, but, um, I have a, a much better understanding. I'm trying to tr- self-educate myself through, you know, watching some television and doing a lot of reading. So it's taken quite a bit of time, and um, I've just taken more of an interest in, um, you know, how economies move and and what's a good investment and what isn't and uh, it just—it's like uh, it's a little bit. Of, it's like golf, you know. It really is. It's like you got a, you got the long game. You got the hybrid clubs. You got the long irons, the mid irons, the short irons, and you all—it's all, all got to have to come together and work. And you have to have to kind of stick with a philosophy and stick with a game plan. So it's very similar, similar that way. Um, So that's not all all I'm doing, but um, I I really have enjoyed kind of getting into that. And unfortunately, you know, like a lot of people out there, um, I still stay busy doing a few golf outings during the year and corporate events and charity things. But unfortunately, all those were canceled this past year. So I, I miss that social interaction because traveling is in my blood. Um, I kind of can't still sit still. Right. So you can throw gardening in there. I've kind of <laughs> gotten into gar- gardening and, um, you know, <laughs> you got to find uh, something to keep, you know, keep busy. Cause like you said, it's, it's keep, hard to socialize these days for sure. Yes. Yeah. So well, that's kind of what I'm up to. And I am kind of, played a little bit more golf than, than usual too, because it used to be 
for all those years that I was playing, I ate, breathed, and slept it. Mm-hmm. And that's all I, all I did. And so as you kind of go into that other phase, um, it just kind of reminds you a big part of who you are when I go out and hit golf balls and play and still compete a little bit on the Legends Tour, which was our start of you know, a women's senior tour, which I think will grow and grow and grow. It really has a big future. So, oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, Amy, yeah. you have had such an incredible career, both on and off the golf course. I want to thank you so much for taking time to be on the show today. And I wish you, like all of our listeners, continued success. And I know everyone appreciates all that you've done for women's golf and, and the sport of golf in general. Tim, thank you for having me. This has uh, been a joy. And um, I uh, hope you're I hope I haven't rambled on too much. I certainly, you can tell I enjoy what I've done in this career and places I've gone and the people I've met. So it's easy to talk about. Well, it's been fantastic. So we've been visiting with LPGA and World Golf Hall of Fame member Amy Alcott. We'll be right back. Well, that's all the time we have for this show. I really appreciate you listening and hope you'll let all of your friends and colleagues know about the show as well. Don't be shy about submitting a review of the show on Google or your favorite podcast platform. I want to thank my very special guest, Amy Alcott, for spending time with us today. Again, you can find On The Green Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or on my website, onthegreenconsulting.com. And if you have ideas for future shows, please send me an email, Tim at onthegreenconsulting.com. I'm your host, Tim Eiley, and until next time, let's try to keep it in the short grass. Mm-hmm.